Welcome to another episode of Congo Kids Life Stories, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Football is understood in the United States as the game with a quarterback, a ball that is oblong, and mostly the ball advances through running or throwing, and it includes a lot of blocking and tackling. Kicking rarely occurs. Football, also known to virtually the rest of the entire planet Earth, involves 11 players per team who try to move a ball downfield and into a goal without using their hands in any way. Mostly, kicking is involved, but using one's head isn't an uncommon way to advance the ball down the field. We in the United States know football as soccer. The ball is round, not oblong, and is only kicked, not carried or thrown. Many countries throughout the world play soccer, while in the 1960s and 70s, and even into the 80s, it was the foreign immigrant to the U.S. that claimed top skills and talent. The sport was not prevalent in schools or colleges, and often like-minded players formed soccer clubs in order to join leagues and enjoy competitive play. I remember in the late 1970s at Riverview High School in Sarasota, Florida, I played for the Riverview Rams. We got to sport the school colors and logo on our uniforms, but we were a club team and not an official school team. And mostly we played other clubs that were of ethnic persuasions. Very few other high schools had an official team or even a club team. We got little school support and games were not well attended like the football or basketball teams were. In high school on my club team, one of the players was our coach. He was from the Middle East. He did the best he could, but he hadn't been trained, and he was our peer, so essentially he organized the team and coordinated our games, but really didn't teach much. I think my team in high school was a fair representation of many of the soccer players at that time, as we had Hispanics, a German, an Iranian, a Korean, and me, from Congo, all on the same team. Less than half the players were local Americans. The American Youth Soccer Association, or AYSO, was still young. It was formed in 1964 in Southern California to encourage local leagues so folks didn't have to travel to play and has gained prominence and influence to the point that about 12 million people currently play soccer in the U.S. in any given year. But in the 1970s and early 1980s, the AYSO program hadn't developed many American players that had risen through the system to compete at the collegiate level. There were exceptions, of course, but overall, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, often the best players on a team were foreigners. You see, soccer hadn't gained traction in the U.S. and it wasn't ingrained in our sports culture like football, basketball, and baseball. So growing up in Congo in the 1960s and 1970s, soccer was a huge part of my sports life. Let's talk about soccer in Congo. Basically, any open area with dirt or grass, a couple of sticks or posts at each end of the field, and something round that was either a ball or resembled a ball was all it took to start a soccer game. I never played on a flat, fully grassy field with real goalposts, lines marking the field of play ever in Africa. Here, in the U.S. now, kids wouldn't think of playing without those basics. We never had a net for the goal in Congo, ever. We never played on a field mowed by a machine or had lines for midfield, the goalie box, or other proper field markings. 
Now let's talk the ball. Here you can buy real soccer balls at any sporting goods store. They make a smaller size for small kids, which is nice. In Congo, we'd bring out soccer balls from the U.S. and use those. But often it would pop or wear out and we'd play with other things. The Congolese kids would play with oranges, grapefruit, or even a sock stuffed with foam and tied off to be round. Another interesting and very creative way to make a ball was to first make a batch of mud. Yes, mud. Then form it into a ball about the size of an orange with your hands. Let it dry. Then go into the forest and find a rubber tree. Tap the tree for rubber sap and coat the entire dried mud ball with rubber sap. Let it dry. Then poke a hole in the rubber and squeeze out the mud and dirt so you have a perfectly formed hollow rubber ball. Then you blow it up. Plug the hole with more rubber and voila, a soccer ball. Unfortunately, these balls were not properly weighted nor perfectly round, so ball handling was difficult. Yet, it did result in excellent skills training if one could master playing with that ball. And for a little Congolese village kid, this homemade rubber ball brought hours of joy playing and chasing it around with his friends in the village. Being foreigners in Congo, where soccer was the national sport and almost the only sport played by the locals, we Americans quickly picked up the sport and it became part of our athletic endeavors and part of our upbringing. As kids growing up, we played soccer almost every day. Even when we had to play other sports for our requisite PE classes, such as basketball, volleyball, or softball, as soon as those PE classes were over, boom, we'd all take off and go play soccer. The best player to come out of our boarding school in Congo, called the Ubangi Academy, or UBOC for short, in my opinion, was Mark Daniels. Mark was extremely skilled and could dribble circles around anybody and everybody. Mark was a few years older than me, so I obviously looked up to him as my soccer hero growing up. I've known Mark since 1965. Mark currently lives in the Chicago area and after a four-year college career playing soccer, moved into coaching high school soccer and has been doing that for over 40 years. Mark shares about his growing up years playing soccer. Here are some conditions he played with. I went barefoot once in a while, but gym shoes, if I stepped on the Africans or the pygmy's foot, they would kind of, you know, wince about and say, Daniels, take your shoes off, you know, so, so I would, we would oblige. But I had a lot of pygmy friends that were located near our mission compound and African friends. So we would always play recreational soccer just for fun. No drills, no games, just play. We'd have uh, shirts and skins. Uh, we'd have sticks kind of pounded into the ground, uh, little sticks to, as goalposts, uh, just makeshift goals. Any patch of grass or patch of ground uh, we would play, pick up teams, mix up and play. Usually it was about not greater than 66. Once you got greater than 66, then you have to have a big field and, and get a, a better ball and that kind of stuff. But this is all just pick up games. And that was my experience of playing soccer at Infondo in Congo with my pygmy friends and African friends. Mark describes the ball he played with. The ball that we used was a rubber ball. Primarily, you can make your own with the rubber, like you said before, but we purchased, it's a very similar to a playground ball. It's a rubber playground ball about the size of a grapefruit, and it could really fly. It, it was a really 
bouncy ball. You had to really control it. And uh, it was really uh, a challenging ball to, to control. So that's what made, I think, skill development really important for us as players. As part of our boarding school life, soccer was a huge part of the fabric and daily life. But I do remember the, the culture of UBOC being we're picking teams as after school. We're, you know, playing every day after school on the big field. And, and we would just play for hours and hours until we were either too tired or there were too many arguments. And so some people just walked away from it. Or it was time for dinner. And uh, we were told, yeah, time to stop. Come on in, boys. Uh, we're done. I remember some girls even joining in with us. But many of them, though, I would say some of them joined in with us, but some of them would stay on the sidelines and just sit and watch and cheer or whatever, uh, do whatever. Uh, it was pure entertainment to watch the boys play, in my opinion. But but I remember that culture very well, playing soccer all the time, mixing and matching with the younger kids as best we could, even though we didn't want them to be on our team. But it was okay. It was fine. Soccer was a huge part of the African culture, too. First of all, you're growing up in a foreign country where the sport is kind of like king, uh, and there's a lot of interest in it from the local nationals. Growing up in the Congo in, in, in Fondo, so I mean, I just loved to play. I don't know if they really loved the game as much as I did, but we all liked to hang out and play. But soccer was, was the life for me that I really enjoyed playing. Virtually everyone played every afternoon when school was out. And it wasn't just the boys that played. Many of the girls joined in. Janet Myers, a classmate of mine all through high school, shares about what soccer meant to her. When I think of soccer in Zaire and now DRC, I think of the many afternoons spent playing the game after school. I so looked forward to those games. We played hard and had a lot of laughs too. I remember the excitement of a soccer game, the cheering, the crowds of people and kids at the game, whether I was home on vacation, at boarding school, or later when I returned to DRC a number of times for work. In fact, in my work, games such as soccer provide an excellent platform to transmit important public health information in some communities as well. I digress. What I love about soccer is that it's fun, brings people together, and I think it was and is a major source of entertainment in some villages, towns, and cities in Congo. I suppose soccer was something to do when I first started to play, but I quickly grew to love the game. I think soccer was a social outlet for me and other kids at UBOC. It was an activity where boys and girls of all age groups did something together. Of course, not everyone liked playing the game and enjoyed pursuing other interests in their free time instead. I feel soccer is a part of my culture and still really enjoy watching the game, even though I don't really play much anymore. Judy Edstrom, another girl that was active in soccer, shares her thoughts on the game. Judy even started the Intramural Soccer League at her college in the early 1980s. I had never played soccer before starting school at UBOC. I discovered that I really enjoyed it and it brought out a competitive streak in me that I hadn't realized I had before. At that time, in the 70s, there really weren't very many athletic outlets for girls. There weren't clubs and school sports that girls could get involved in, even in the U.S. In middle school in Chicago, the Covenant Churches had a basketball league where different churches played each other. From my recollection, the boys played on the basketball team and the girls were the cheerleaders. I joined the cheerleaders and enjoyed it, but that was what we were allowed to do. 
soccer at Ubox fulfilled several things, I think. I grew to enjoy the sport, but I suppose it was a way to belong and be part of a team and fit in as well. Then, in college at North Park in the 80s, there wasn't a varsity girls soccer team, but in the area, a few schools had started women's club soccer teams. Another lady and I worked together to start a women's soccer club at North Park. A couple of alumni from the men's soccer team, who still lived in the area, volunteered as our coaches. We competed with a few of the schools in the area. We weren't very good, but we had a lot of fun. Later, after college, my husband James and I played for five or six years on a co-ed recreational team in the area in the 90s. We enjoyed it very much and even won two championships in the league. In fact, one of the highlights was winning the co-ed championship on a penalty shot that I made. I remember enjoying having the girls play with us almost every afternoon, and some of them were really quite good and skilled players. One of the annual events was when the American high school kids played a local Congolese team. Usually, it was the male nurses from the hospital. These guys were grown adults playing against us as teenagers, and the event was quite a sporting spectacle. I played in a few of those games, but none with Mark because he was older. I don't remember it being that big of a deal for me. Uh, I've always been kind of a low-key sort of guy anyways, but I just wanted to have fun playing. And it was nice to play against older guys, you know, get pushed around a little bit and match up well. Uh, that was always a challenge for me. And I wanted it to be a challenge for everyone else is to, to you know, just see how we can do against these guys. We're supposedly the foreigners, you know, here. You know, when a white kid schools one of the nurses, you know, it's like, oh, you, you could hear some laughter and some and jeering, you know, on, oh man, you know, so-and-so just pulled a meg on someone else, you know, made a nice move, scored a goal or whatever it was. So the individual flair was more important than the, the victory itself or the game. It was who can really play out there and really enjoying watching them play. So I don't remember necessarily all the hoopla to the game. It was just basically playing against a team and enjoying the game that you love to play. Lots of pride was on the line playing against the Africans, as this was their game, and we were foreigners and were supposed to be inferior. They were into flair, showmanship, and showing off skills more than teamwork. I think in all the years, we maybe beat them once, but usually the nurses prevailed. I did play on an African team later in high school, which was fun, as being a teammate versus opponent had its advantages. As mentioned previously, the Africans really liked flair and flash. I remember one game I was playing as a defender. The entire field was surrounded by a crowd, two to three people deep. They were cheering and having a great time. Well, we defenders had pulled up towards midfield when someone kicked a long ball towards our goal. I ran and got to the ball. It was bouncing really high. With my front facing our goal, I leaped up and did a scissor kick something that I did on occasion. I connected well, and the ball sailed back to the other side of the field. The crowd went wild. People rushed into the field, cheering and laughing and hooting it up as this white kid had pulled off an epic stunt. Yes, it was an effective play, and yes, I was showing off, but the crowd loved it. Rick Peterson was a couple years older than I, and we played for a couple seasons on a team called Monzoi which means B. Yes, we did sting. After high school, many of us would come to the States and play in college. 
As mentioned previously, we had an advantage of having played all growing up while only a few Americans had. Thus, most of us were walk-ons to the college teams. We hadn't been formally coached and had grown up playing pickup soccer with non-regulation fields or goals or equipments. But it was what we knew, and we excelled at it. College soccer gave many of us an immediate community while we were thousands of miles from our parents and helped us fit into our new school. Mark Daniels played four years at Trinity College, my alma mater. For me, it was an instant group of friends, players that were like-minded, and I happened to be one of the players coming in as a freshman, and they noticed me because I had some skill and I had some ability, and David Oldberg had gone before me and kind of spilled the beans, so to speak, and said, hey, there's a kid named Daniels coming in next year, yada, 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 you know, you got to see what he, what he can do. Uh, yeah, look him up, make sure you sign him up for soccer and all that kind of stuff. He's already going to be playing anyways. Instant group of friends and comrades to participate in. Their friends were our friends, so they had friends. You know, we all got to, to be together. We, we lived, breathed, and slept soccer for the first couple months, as you would know, and being an incoming freshman and being taken under the wing, so to speak, by these older classmates who were good players in and of themselves was really instrumental for me. There was another missionary kid who was my best man at my wedding, who was a missionary kid from Angola. He also came into Trinity. So he and I palled around as freshmen together. And we had a, had a similar background, you know, playing soccer overseas in, in Africa. And our team was just loaded with MKs. MKs, one from Sweden, one from Venezuela, one from Cameroon, one from uh, Angola, me from Congo. I would say there were probably less than a handful of American-born kids on that team my first couple of years at Trinity. And we all knew what the game of soccer, and so we were good at, at that, and we competed well against the American kids from other schools, be it Aurora or Rockford or Judson, who didn't have that sort of background, who were just coming into the game for themselves right now and learning the game as, you know, instead of playing American football, they were playing football or soccer. That was kind of like the idea for me was we had a really successful team because of our MK experience and background overseas. The style of play was different overseas versus here in the States. Our coach was very instrumental in, in playing the game the right way, not making it an Americanized football, but really a passion for the game to possess, pass, and play a different style than most American schools at that time were playing. Most American schools were playing more physical, physicality, more tactical stuff. It was more team tactics versus ball possession. So we brought a different flavor to the game, and we were able to overcome those other physicality fitness moments with flair and with just being able to be a better skilled individual skilled player, a ball possession team. So being a ball possession team, you, you, you can, that's a kind of style of play that our coach really bought into and using the strengths of our, of his players that he had. Uh, I, I think he was smart in doing that. Well, that was the American football mentality coming into the game of soccer. They felt that the more aggressive you could be, the more physical you could be, the more, and speed plays a factor. Yeah, you got to be there quick and all that kind of stuff. But the minute you can get the ball off your foot, possess, and play to the open space, 
you know, find those players and play keep away, uh, there's really not a whole lot to do. Uh, you got to fight. You got to fight to get the ball. I asked if Mark's love for the game led him to a career in soccer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, love of the game, support of my teammates. You know, I've been on many different kinds of teams, many of them quite successful, some of them not. Uh, so I've I've experienced the whole gamut. I've played myself quite a bit in men's leagues in this area here at a higher level than than many coaches, but. I'm not saying that you need to be a professional player to be a good coach because that's not what usually happens. But you need to be a teacher of the game. You need to break the the skills down to its simplest component as far as your foot skills and your ball skills and make it as simple as possible and then build from there to improve your game as as a player. So that's been, I think, my strength as a coach is to take the simplest parts of the game and build from there and keep adding to your repertoire skills so you become a more complete player. It's been a challenge, and uh, but it's been kind of fun. For me, when I headed off to college, I had no intention of playing as I was taking a full class load and needed to work part-time to pay my way through school. But one of my friends from Congo convinced me I could and should play soccer. I barely survived Hell Week as I hadn't trained and wasn't in shape. Let me recollect that fun-filled week. 6 a.m., roll out of the sack and go for a five-mile run. 8 a.m., breakfast. 9 a.m., run two miles as a warm-up to the field. Practice until noon. Lunch and then nap time. 2 p.m., another two-mile warm-up run to the field. Practice until 5 p.m. dinner. 7 p.m., hey, time for another five-mile run just for fun. So that's 14 miles of just running and about six hours of drills, wind sprints, and the like. Rinse and repeat for six more days. When you're not in shape coming into that, the only word to describe it is absolute brutal. It was during Hell Week in August of 1980 that I first met my soccer coach, Mark Shartner. Mark had played for Trinity College in the 1970s and sported jersey number five, then became the soccer coach after he graduated. He coached me for all four years that I played. After 15 years coaching at Trinity, he moved on to become a high school coach in the Chicagoland area. He coached for 36 seasons of high school soccer, including boys' teams, girls' teams, and kids with special needs. He estimates that he's coached over 100 seasons over 50 years. He's retired now, but has been an assistant coach for 10 years for a team in Florida. As a player in the 1970s and young college coach in the 1980s, often half his team consisted of foreign players. Most were missionary kids or MKs. This brought some challenges and rewards. Well, the main thing, Jeff, is that I didn't treat them any differently than I did anybody else. Everybody was pretty much the same. The difference in the MKs were, it's kind of ironic that they came with some naive, uh, almost young, fresh innocence, but the reality was they were probably more mature than the kid that was born in the lower 48. Many of the foreign players hadn't been coached. Was that a factor? Oh, yes, of course, but it was a good factor because... At that time in America, it was hard to teach the technical side of the game. 
the MKs came with all that technical, free-loving, free-spirited, uh, no restraint skill level. And the Americans hadn't caught up to that yet. If every soccer coach or any coach in any sport is a technical, tactical coach, the technical side is the one that takes the most time and patience to develop, and that takes years. Where the tactical side is bringing a group of personalities together, molding them and shaping them into one unit and making them play as one. So the MK has brought this tactical experience that some of the American-born kids did not have. And then the tactical side of it was really partly my job is to make sure that everybody molded together and played well with one another. Most hadn't ever formally played on a team. In part, the, the more skilled positions, which would have been more in the midfield or that rare guy that can actually finish a ball, those were more MKs. They, they had to play those more technical positions where maybe a few more outside defenders or a goalkeeper or somebody who could just absolutely outrun everybody. You know, they could be placed in a different position on the field where the, the technical side of the game wasn't as important. The MKs, they brought the world to my team. The other kids, they did not have that kind of chance to be brought up in another part of the world. They didn't understand it. So I don't think they were smart enough, old enough, sensitive enough to really tap in and learn from the MKs as an adult would. They were still young boys. There was a difference in our approach to the game, as Coach explains. You know, winning wasn't everything. Playing well was just as important. You know, being disciplined on the field, following the coach's instructions, trying your hardest, and probably more, uh, a little more of the respect uh, we're playing for our Lord Jesus Christ. And there was a maturity level to, yeah, the MKs were all competitive, but not at the expense of losing their reputation. I asked Coach what aspect the foreign or missionary kid player brought to the team. There was zero negativity when it came to the MKs. It was all positive. You know, every coach has a team that is set up, and there's always a few guys on that team that they're at risk. They're one bad decision away from imploding the team or making a bad decision. Um, honestly, in all the years I either coached, and you have to remember, I played there four years earlier, and I played with a lot of MKs, and those guys were rule followers. They were not any of the, the uh, athletes that I worried about making a, a silly mistake and embarrassing the team. No, it was completely different. There was a love and respect and a discipline um, that they brought to the team that we wouldn't have had without them. Did he learn anything from having MKs on the team? Well, and I think I think that it started when I was playing. And, of course, one of my dearest friends in the world and one of the guys I stayed closest to is Bertie Holmgren, who not only I played with, but was my assistant coach as well for a period of time and now works as a pastor in Rockford. And the things I've learned from Bertie are, yeah, they're life-changing. You know, it's a whole different perspective when you grow up in another country. He was able to relate easily to us MKs. I think I tried to treat everybody the same, but I think I was more careful about the, and maybe a little more protective of the MKs. 
I did not want them to feel like they were in a foreign country since this was pretty much their country. And at times, I think that, that there was probably evidence of them feeling like that once in a while, that they were strangers. But they're not different than any other athlete that comes to a strange school for the first time. And the, the best thing that can happen to an athlete is be part of a team. You know, get to know some people right away, have this brotherhood, have this bond, and have this feeling of worthiness immediately. Jump start it, you know, day one at your college first experience. Every team brings that. But I think the MKs probably needed it as well as everybody else. He also looks fondly at his time being a teammate with some non-Americans during his collegiate soccer career. You made me go back and relive a lot of stuff. And that was, that was really healthy for me. Not just uh, having MK players, but remembering the joy I had with the MKs that I played with. I'm hoping as a head coach that happened, but as a player, if Coach Smith came to me and said, hey, next year, we've got this player coming from Nigeria, and he's an amazing finisher. And oh, by the way, Sharner, he's going to be your roommate. You know, but yeah, you, you made me relive a lot of things. And there was a sad part to it, too, that I was too stupid or naive or too young not to tap into their world more and learn more about their upbringing and their culture. And But God is good, and I'm very thankful for the opportunities that I had to, to rub shoulders with MKs and players that had grown up in other countries. To give the history of the Trinity College team, Mark recounted that a missionary kid from Taipei named Phil Johnson pushed to convert the club team to a full college-sanctioned sport in 1969. Phil had a brother named Gustav that was an ex-Army Airborne veteran that would practice with the club team. When the school finally recognized the club as a college team, to honor his brother, they came up with the idea of chanting Airborne. That became our rally cry before every game. One, two, three, airborne. This continued for years. My last two years of playing, we all sported armbands that spelled out PTG, or Play to Glorify. We wanted to be a good example, glorifying God and to show good sportsmanship in winning or losing to our opponents. Another memory of my college soccer career was that as freshmen, we were called tadpoles. It wasn't a derogatory term per se, but we had to pick up the cones, the balls, and put all the equipment back after every practice. Once you were a sophomore, then those duties got relegated to the freshman tadpoles. Interestingly, Coach changed his philosophy on this in his later years. That changed. Early on, I would say probably the whole time I was at Trinity, tadpoles had responsibilities for uh, whether it was just getting the water ready, whether collecting the equipment afterwards. Um, but as I grew as a coach and matured as a coach, when I was at Stevenson, any of the young players that were brought up to varsity never carried equipment, never got the water, never were responsible for putting gear away, only the seniors. And that was a valuable lesson that I learned, and I used that for the last 30-plus years. It's that if you're a senior and you're a leader and you're a captain, you teach by example. You're the one who's going to protect the freshman. You're the one that's going to make sure they're 
welcome. You're the one that's making sure that you've got their six. Whole different flip-flop from the beginning. They were still called tadpoles. Oh, yeah. But those tadpoles didn't do anything. They were taken care of by the seniors, by the captains. And I think they love it. I think they love the fact that they're just, but there is a hierarchy. And part of the hierarchy is allowing those who can follow without being disruptive need to do that. Those that need to lead because of their personality or the way God made them, they need to be fulfilled in that that area. And not everybody can be great at all of those things. They cannot. It just doesn't work. But if you can find the right combination of people that are willing to listen to a peer and a peer that's willing to give direction with respect and you and not abuse that authority, but use that authority to make the group stronger, yeah, then you it's a win-win all the time. So I survived Hell Week, and it was partway through the first half of the first game of the season that coach called me over and waved a senior defender to come out. In I went for my first college game as a varsity starter. I sported jersey number 17. I then started every game for four years. For four years, I had teammates, had friendships, had victories, and disappointments. Some were extremely heart-wrenching, like qualifying for the national playoff tournament in Orlando, Florida, when a coach from a Christian school that shall remain nameless challenged the eligibility of one of our players. That prevented us from going to the tournament. Absolutely crushing. In the end, our player was deemed eligible, but we never got to play for the national championship. I played in snow and ice and rain, and once I wore six shirts under my jersey since it was raining and 32 degrees. I remember falling and my hand breaking through the ice in a puddle and my gloved hands getting soaked at Judson College. Absolutely miserable. One year, our team had the best defensive unit ever. I played stopper, Steve Wester was sweeper, Danny Hegel was left defender, and Dave Stoyer was right defender. Rounding us out was Dan Dondit as goalie. Dan was a basketball player, so had excellent hands. We all clicked. We all anticipated one step ahead, and we were a defensive wall. Almost nobody got through us and scored. I believe we had six shutouts in a row and something like 10 or 11 total for the season. I know we broke the record for shutouts that year. That was one of my memories of total teamwork and trust of your fellow player. To rate myself as a college player, I'd say I was probably in the 60 percentile with my ball handling skills, 90% of game knowledge and knowing where to be at all times. But my best strength to the game was speed. I could knock down a big six foot two player, be up and on the ball before he even had gotten back to his feet, or kick a long ball towards the goal over the defenders, and I'd beat everyone to the ball every time. I was fast. I think it's genetic, as I remember my grandpa saying he was always the fastest runner when he was a kid. Reflecting back, though, it was a great experience that taught me discipline, work ethic, perseverance, and how to get along with others on a team. I look back with fond memories of my college soccer career, though I did experience many highs and many lows. I pulled my box of trophies out of the closet last week to reminisce about my four years of college soccer. For the record, and for the benefit of my grandchildren to have this info when I'm long gone, I will recount my awards here today. 
though about 40 years ago, these awards were part of my glory days back in college. I lettered as a varsity player for four years. In 1981 and 1983, I was named NCCAA All-District. That was over five different states. In 1981 and 1983, I was named NIIC All-Conference. In 1981, I was named the Best Defensive Player. In 1983, I was named All-Illinois by the National Soccer Coaches Association of America. In 1983, I was the leading scorer. In 1984 and 1985, I was named to the NIIC All-Scholastic Team. In 1984, I was named MVP. In 1984, I was named Best Offensive Player. And in 1983 and the 1984 seasons, I was co-captain. I will say this, though. I believe that one record I hold will never be broken. That is, I was named All-Conference at both the defensive position and offensive position. I was also voted by my teammates as best defender and best offender. Coach Shartner said that that record will never be broken. I probably should call my alma mater's athletic department and have them check their record books. It was quite a career, which now, almost 40 years later, really doesn't mean much. All those certificates and plaques are in a box in my closet, rarely looked at. Unlike Mark Daniels and Mark Shartner, who stayed in the sport through playing and coaching, I played a bit after college and coached a few AYSO teams for a few years, and then I moved on to other sports and interests like softball, surfing, and mountain biking. Coach Shartner taught me a lot about life, which in hindsight was and is more important than mastering a soccer skill. While he wanted to win games, he was more focused on growing his players into better men and better people. In fact, check out blog article number four on my website, congokid.net, about a lesson on leadership. The blog article is called Finding Your Voice, and I learned that from Coach Mark Shartner. I want to thank Mark Daniels, Coach Mark Shartner, Judy Edstrom, and Janet Myers for sharing for this soccer episode. Soccer was a huge part of my formative years that taught me teamwork, perseverance, physical discipline, physical fitness, and taught me much about life. Sometimes life brings victory. Sharing a tough win with your teammates is absolutely wonderful. And other times life can bring defeat or loss. But it's how you deal with that loss with your teammates, yourself, and your opponents that will determine your success in life. Soccer taught me a lot that I carry with me even today. So that concludes this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will listen again. Other podcasts and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Congo Kids Life Stories are also posted on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I will send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Baninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well.